Hey, y'all, I wanted to take a second before we get into this episode to remind you that the show is also available on YouTube. And starting from episode number 101, it's all in 4K. I'm trying to make the best video podcast I can, so definitely check it out and subscribe to the channel if you haven't already. Go to youtube.com slash at progressionspod or hit the link in the show notes. If you're not getting enough progressions and you want to get even more thoughts on creativity, productivity, and growth in music, then you should sign up for my newsletter. You'll find a brief article in each monthly edition as well as updates on progressions and myself. I'm also sharing some workflow hacks and links to stuff that I found interesting or helpful. So it should be fun. If you want to stay up to date on the latest and get all the bonus stuff, go to travisferencecom slash subscribe or click the link in the show notes. Hey, welcome to Progression, Success in the Music Industry. I'm your host, Travis Ferrans, and this is episode number 45. Great interview coming at you today. I took on one of the more difficult time zones to schedule an interview in and sat down with a producer based out of Melbourne, Australia. But before we get into that, I wanted to keep it light today on the open with just a couple quick tips. Every show, I end up asking our guest what his or her current biggest goal is and what is the next smallest step they're going to take to go towards it. And we've talked a lot about the mindsets and deeper ideas that will help you reach those goals, or that could be holding you back from them. But it's been a while since we did some simple productivity tips to help you execute on those small steps. And here's the thing I've found about things that can move the needle in your career. They are generally super simple. See, the overly complicated plans of action are rarely ever executed on, and the brain is definitely not quick to admit that there was an easier solution that it chose to skip over. And I should say here that by easier, I mean more obvious or simple concepts. They are not necessarily easy to execute. Example, we all know that exercise is a fairly easy solution to improve your health, but that actually exercising is not an easy thing to get into the habit of. Okay, so let's get into the tips. I've got two tips I want to throw at you, and like I said, they are obvious and they are simple, but I'm willing to bet you probably don't do them. So first one, schedule time in your calendar for the things that will move you towards your goal. Okay, before you get all up in arms and skip forward to the interview mumbling, I do that, everybody does that. Think about it, do you actually do it? Most people do not time block their day down to the minute like somebody like Elon Musk. Most of us think about it before we go to bed or over our morning coffee. Something like, today I need to mix this song, I need to prepare for this podcast interview, and I need to pick up bread from the store. Done, your day's planned. You're advancing your mixing career and your podcast, and you decided how to do it all over coffee. But are you? Neither of those things are moving the needle towards your goals. Think about it. You're doing work on a mix that you already booked, and you're preparing for an interview for your podcast. Doing an interview doesn't actually get you listeners. Now, let me tell you from experience, because in case you haven't noticed, I'm using myself as the example here. The act of sitting in front of Pro Tools and mixing a song has never gotten me another gig. And in the same way, recording an interview will not grow my podcast. Maybe reflecting back on how to be a better interviewer does, but the show does not grow successfully just because I talked to somebody for an hour. So all that being said, it's really easy to look at that mental schedule for the day and check boxes thinking you're moving towards your goal, but you're not. You've got to find the thing that will move the needle forward for whatever you're doing and be sure to dedicate time in your calendar to it and not to an auxiliary task that's related to it. And take my word for it, this is easier said than done, especially in the music world. You could get a creative spark and blow your whole day off to write a song. Or you might get lost in a production and cancel a meeting or whatever. It happens. But you have to remember that if you're willing to block the time out for the things that will make progress happen, then you will indeed see progress. 
And let's not forget, you've got to guard that time and you've got to commit to it or else it's all for nothing. So tip one in review, put time in your calendar for the tasks that will move the needle for you, even if they're simple and quick. Okay, so at this point, it's possible you've paused this podcast and started reading about Elon Musk and his time blocking because he's far more interesting than me. I'm not going to argue with that. He did make a flamethrower. I can't compete with somebody that made a flamethrower. No, but seriously, let's say you are really excited about this idea of time blocking and scheduling your whole life. You've now done that for your day. Your problems are solved. You've pre-ordered your yacht and you're now planning your retirement dinner. Well, bad news. Your phone rang or you opened your email. You've now entered the rabbit hole. The day's over. Your dreams are crushed. The yacht's repossessed. Your glorious schedule is thrashed and you give up hope on scheduling as the savior to your problems. It happens to everybody. Enter tip number two. I heard this somewhere a couple weeks ago, and it was the most obvious yet most mind-blowing thing I've heard in a while. Schedule time for interruptions in your calendar. Let's take a moment of silence to reflect on the absolute ridiculousness of how simple that is. If you've ever thought to yourself, my day got away from me and I didn't get what I wanted done, then your mind was just blown the way mine was. Think about it. If you schedule time for your most important thing because it moves the needle, then why not schedule time for the thing that will most likely derail your progress? Try something like dropping check email in your calendar for an hour after lunch. You can check them all, put out the fires, and if it takes less than an hour, you'll feel like you actually just gained time, which is great. Or if you're the type of person that does a lot of phone calls, put your phone on silent during your, quote, most important thing time, and then call everybody back in a dedicated time slot later. You've got to guard and protect your time. Chasing the needs of other people all day will derail your progress, guaranteed. And I'm not saying don't do these things. I'm just saying take the stuff that consistently throws your day off and schedule time for it. If you do that, then you won't have the urge to answer every email immediately because you know you've got email scheduled in your calendar with sufficient time to handle everything. So that's it for today. Just a couple simple, quick tips that are slightly related But I think the moral of the story here is that your time is valuable. It's the most valuable thing you have. So you really need to master how to use it if you want to achieve your goals. If you don't actively put time towards it, you won't do it. I'll leave you with a super simple example of how basic this concept really is. Did you ever want to read a book? Some popular fiction series like Harry Potter or something? What did you do to read it? You probably decided something like, I'll read for 30 minutes every night. Everybody always goes to the read before bed move. Well, what happened? You read the book. So why would you not do something that simple for your career? Today's guest is producer, songwriter, and recording artist Gab Strum. Gab releases music under the name Japanese Wallpaper, as well as writes and produces for other artists. Based out of Melbourne, Australia, he's found success on Triple J Radio with several of his tracks, as well as some of his productions, including Forces featuring Erling and In Motion by All Day. His latest album, Glow, came out at the end of 2019 and has been followed up by a slew of new singles over the last year, all of which are killer. And he's also no stranger to remixes, having done tracks for artists such as Death Cab for Cutie and Charlie XCX. So welcome to the show, Gab Strum. Hey, Gab, how's it going? Hey, what's up? I'm really good. How are you? Good, man. It's been a, it's been a long time, pre-COVID since we saw each other. Yeah. At the back of that rehearsal spot in L.A., it Where was, your old uh, studio was, I guess. Yes. Yeah. Actually, a kind of a funny story that I wanted to tell people because it's like, I love a good small world story. And so for our listeners, I met Gab originally via email because I was mixing something he, he'd produced 
for an artist called, uh, it was the Eternal Crush, right? Yeah. Yes. Um, dope band you guys should check out. But uh, we'd never met, and I was at my old studio, and I look across the parking lot to the rehearsal studio, and there's this guy that looks like the guy that I follow on Instagram now. And I'm like, mm -hmm. that looks like that producer and Japanese wallpaper guy. I'm going to go inside. I want to message him. And so I sent him a message, and I was like, hey, dude, are you rehearsing at Mates Across the Street? And then, uh, <laughs> and then you were like, yeah. So, so it's a weird, weird small world, man. It's yeah. awesome. Was that studio called Mates? Yeah, Mates Rehearsal. They have like, That's awesome. Um, yeah. yeah, it's good. Mm -hmm. It's a good spot. But uh, yeah, dude, I was, uh, I always have such a good time hanging out with Australians. I feel like, <laughs> I feel like I should move there. I don't know if, would yeah. you guys take, take me in, take a redneck yeah, from America? Anytime. <laughs> oh man. Awesome. Uh, so I don't really know. I don't know a ton about how you got started. I know that you've, you've had success and you play multiple instruments, but I don't know, like wh what's your musical inspiration? Where, like, where'd you start? What'd you pick up first? I started learning piano when I was five and my mom, I think she'd been reading about this piano or like this music education method called Suzuki where they get kids started really young and they prioritize like listening and playing over reading and writing, kind of the way that you would learn a language. You learn to speak and understand before you learn to read and write. And I think one big thing with that teaching method is getting started really young. So mom was like, all right, five years old, you go on to piano lessons. And for the first few years, I didn't really like it. And I mean, you know, making classical music appealing to young people is not the easiest thing in the world. But over time, <laughs> I kind of grew to really love playing the piano and love all that music that I was learning. And I think that specific way of teaching music kind of really set me on the path to or like gave me a lot of skills that I think come in really handy in the studio just in terms of just being able to listen and play quickly and not have to yeah. kind of search around for the key and you know learn the chords before the artist comes in or anything like that it's just kind of given me a really like instinctual just base point of comprehending music and being able to play that was kind of the origin story, I guess, of like me playing music. And then I guess I'd always just been messing with ideas in, in GarageBand and just like slowly delving into the production world through that. But I think the thing that really made me want to figure out recording and producing and all the studio stuff was that I was in a high school band and we won some kind of Battle of the Bands competition where the prize was to go and record a song in a studio. <laughs> And we get to this big studio in somewhere in Melbourne and we're all like 14 or 15 or something. And we go in and we play our song. I reckon they give us like three or four takes. And then it's like, cool, thanks so much. We'll send you the mix when it's done. And we were all so excited about it. And the mix came back and it was awful. And it just, <laughs> I mean, it probably wasn't awful, but it just didn't sound like, it didn't sound like what we thought we sounded like. And it didn't sound like any of the music that we liked. And at that point, I didn't understand that, like, the drum sound on the Phoenix album was made up of, you know, overheads from a kit and then samples. And then it was all, like, processed in a certain way and all of that kind of stuff. Like, it was just, like, the drums sound thin and they don't sound like Phoenix. Like, what have we done wrong? <laughs> and it's, I mean, you know, still to this day, like, getting a mix back that doesn't sound like the intention of the, that was in the studio is, like, a 
hard experience emotionally, I think, for anyone. But Oh, yeah. Yeah, just that kind of initial like, this is wrong, but I don't know how to articulate it and I don't know how to improve it kind of set me on the path of trying to learn about recording and producing and just, yeah, the whole the whole thing that I'm doing. Something that I've never talked about, which is really, I can't believe this has never come up, <laughs> but well, what you just said about the, you know, like getting a mix back that doesn't really sound like what you imagined, you know, the the recording was. Like, do you have any thoughts or suggestions or I don't know let's talk about the artist perspective side of the first mix because I obviously have experienced the mixer side where you get that email where they're like what have you done you missed (laughs) so hard what do you expect or what do you hope for as an artist because I think there's a lot of people that could learn from that idea (laughs) I mean I think you hope for at least like a shared understanding of the end goal which yeah. I think is the artist's responsibility or the producer's responsibility to communicate. And I think that's kind of a separate endeavor to passing on the stems. Yes. Yeah. And I, I think often that's just like a part of the process that's left out. And then, you know, the mixer will hear it. Often the mixer and the artist don't know each other. And, you know, they've never spoken about music and what they like and what they don't like. And there's kind of no shared understanding of the goal and the yes. mix comes back and it's just not that. I mean, from a practical and kind of technical perspective, I think the I've been finding that the way to get closer to that point in the first mix is sending less stems. But maybe I think that also kind of comes with me getting a bit more confident as a mixer as well and knowing that like if I am going to send 20 stems to a mixer instead of 100 stems, like there's not going to be kind of big problems to to fix. Oh, yeah. Well, but I don't know. I mean, I remember when we worked together, the stuff that you sent me, it sounded like the rough mix. Like everything that, you know, was in that rough mix was represented in your files, you know, except for one or two things that were obvious of like, okay, do your own reverb here. But I think that's something that, like you said, it's kind of the responsibility of the producer and the artist to give you the files that represent the, you know, that represent the song, but then also still have that conversation. And the conversation is the thing that people don't do. And that could save everybody so much time. I don't know why. It's something about the digital internet era where it's all an email and it's like, here's the link, make it sound like Adele. See <laughs> you next week, you know, or, or whatever or whatever it is. And it, man, it, it, it can be tough on, on both sides, but I never thought about it from the artist side. It's probably a real, a real downer when the mix is like just not what you thought it was going to be. Yeah, I think like, I mean, for the first, few years that I was putting music out I would only work with one mixer and I would always go to his studio while he was mixing and sit on the couch and makes a huge to me that was the experience of mixing was doing it together and hearing things and talking about things and you know if something happened that I didn't like it was really easy to course correct in that moment rather than you know let him make 20 other decisions that follow from the decision that I didn't like. And then it's really hard to undo <laughs> it. And like, you know, it's a full, and, and as I kind of start mixing a little bit more myself, like I'm noticing that a lot of artists tend to make notes on the vocal presentation and the vocal effects more than anything else. Oh yeah. Obviously like when I'm the artist and I'm getting mixes back, like 
we're all just nervous about how our voices sound and all the notes are around that. But, you know, I think in the same way that the vocal character plays a big part on in kind of communicating the artist's identity and all of that stuff, so too the parallel compression on the drums and the amount that things are like dirty or clean and like pumping or dynamic and all of that stuff. And I think those decisions are really hard to undo after they've happened, you know, like if you've made the decision about this mix feeling a certain way and you go about that and then the artist goes, it needs to be more dynamic. It's kind of like you have to mix the song again. Kind of, you do. Yeah. Yeah, there's mm. yeah, there's so many things that are built on top of each other that you can you can end up in quite a hole if if you went the wrong way. I've been there. Everybody's been there. If you <laughs> haven't been there, call me. I'll have you on the podcast. Um, okay, that it's interest. That was an interesting tangent because that just like it just sparked for me when you said that. The other thing I thought that you you mentioned that in your early days is like the ear training and the, like the learning to listen because I have so many engineers and, and mixers on the show and we're always talking about like listening you know, technically, but being able to like sit down at a piano and just play what you just heard, I'm so jealous of that talent. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> props on, on having that. It, and it makes a world of difference in the studio. Definitely. You can help an artist get an idea out so fast when they sing something and you can walk over and play it. Yeah, that thing is twofold. Like on the one hand, I definitely think that some people are just predisposed to like having you know, just like better understanding of harmony without like figuring it out. But on the other hand, like, you know, my first couple years of piano lessons before I saw any sheet music, there was the CD and you would just listen to the CD all the time. And the teacher would tell my mom, like, make sure the CD's on in the car every day. And like, you just really get to know those like 10 songs (laughs) And then you would just have to listen to it and figure it out and keep going back and forth from the recording to, you know, you at the, at the piano. That's amazing. I mean, it was obviously quite simple music that you could just figure out by ear, but that was the whole endeavor, you know? Right. I guess I never knew what the Suzuki method was until you Mm. just told me. It was awesome. (laughs) And, you know, like I'm not, I, I still play piano and keys and that's like a big part of my time in the studio but I'm not a concert pianist and I don't really have anything to do with the classical world anymore but that kind of way of learning fully kind of set me on the path I think yeah no it's a it's a huge skill I mean I I did you know I did a lot of ear training in in college and uh you know I, I can't I can't do it like some of the musicians that I've worked with and I'll, I'll always be envious. I could, let's be honest, I could practice. I could, <laughs> I could do it, but it's like, you know, it takes time. But yeah, it's just like such a valuable skill to have. Mm. I just, I suggest any producer or songwriter or musician just really just learn how to do it to your, the best of your ability. You know, it's just the musical ear is, is, is huge. Yeah. Well, I wanted to ask you, I have a whole list of questions. And now that we've already, ta- like normally the tangent is later, I'm, you know, I'm less confused, but now I'm all, I'm all mixed up already. How would you compare the Australian scene to like the US scene? Like I have an image where it's, there's the people that I've worked with and communicated with, there's like a pop sensibility, but then like there seems to be like a more artistic and like indie approach to that, like in a way that doesn't happen here. Do you feel that way? Or is that just how I feel from the outside? I definitely think that there are factors that kind of lead to that point. And 
Okay. The main one is that <laughs> Australian pop radio doesn't play Australian music. Australian pop radio plays Billboard Top 20 or whatever, you know. Okay. And so getting on the radio in Australia as an Australian artist is kind of like in the alternative radio sphere. And that station is Triple J where it's kind of like a government-funded, nationally broadcast radio show. Right. And they, you know, they have like 10 people on their staff or whatever that listens to everything that gets submitted from independent artists. And there's a really clear way of kind of pitching your music to radio as an independent, unsigned like you just go on the website and upload it kind of thing. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, it's kind of, I mean, obviously like the the industry kind of complicates this process a little bit because, you know, you can just pitch your music to them that way independently or you can have Sony Australia going to the office and saying, hey, listen to this artist that's just uploaded that stuff that we represent. Right. But yeah, good music or, I mean, good is so subjective, but like, Things that are going to work in that world very rarely fall through the cracks with them because people are just listening to stuff all the time. And I think because of that, you can be more experimental maybe or you you don't have to just make something that's quite straight down the line to fit on like American pop radio because it's just kind of never going to happen. Right. (laughs) And I mean like you look at the big Australian like pop radio success stories of the last kind of 10, 15 years and they're all quite weird. Like that Dance Monkey song is like just nothing sounds like that. And if you're an American pop artist that was trying to get on the radio, you wouldn't make something like that or you wouldn't make something like a somebody that I used to know or something that doesn't get to the chorus for two minutes. (laughs) True. Because no one would take you seriously. But here I feel like there's just that permission to try stuff and for some reason those kind of circumstances I think kind of allow for a lot more I don't know if I would call it experimentation but definitely like playfulness in terms of the approach or like individuality I guess you know there's like an amount of popular music that has to sound like everything else and I feel like in some other countries outside the US that you kind of get to do your own thing a little bit more and still get praised for it yeah Maybe I just listen to too much pop music and I'm just completely <laughs> missing that over here and maybe everybody thinks I'm crazy, but it's an interesting perspective. The fact that pop radio is filled with stuff that's not from Australia. So mm. that leaves like Australian artists looking for Australian artists to go to like Triple J and some of the other stations. Uh, yeah, that makes sense to me. It makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, let's talk about your progression of your career and how you got to, to where you are now. I know you, at one point, I think 2014, like you won some kind of competition that was a Triple J thing. Was that like a along the ride? Did that help the ride? Like, well, how did people start to get on the Japanese wallpaper train? Yeah, I mean, I'd kind of been putting stuff out for like a year before that happened and playing very small shows and just kind of starting to figure things out. And I mean, I think SoundCloud got the ball rolling more than anything else, really. Because at that point, there was like, it felt like there was a real community of people making stuff that kind of sounded like what I was making. And there was a way that just by uploading stuff that, you know, sounded like that, it could get 
heard by people and and kind of transcend that like online community and you know through SoundCloud I had a song get synced in like a, a Zach Braff movie and I'd oh, that was been, from SoundCloud yeah I think that's like amazing either he or his assistant or someone had just heard it and thought oh this would be great and you know they got in touch with me over like the SoundCloud message portal and stuff like it was all very <laughs> much like things were happening on that website like I would you know that was that was it for a, a, a while. And then, yeah, the Triple J thing, like, as I said before, like, you just upload your music to that unearthed website and people listen to it. And every year they kind of like spotlight one artist that's under 18. And at that point I was maybe 16 or 17 or something. Okay, and, wow. You know, through that, like, the first couple songs that I'd ever made were on high rotation on the radio nationally and you know because of that you can start touring and things definitely started ramping up in that year oh cool okay that, that's awesome so were you are this whole time you're are you unmanaged and unsigned you're just just you around the time of the unearth thing i'd kind of met my first manager oh, okay and i was his first artist as well and we were just kind of figuring it out all together it's amazing but yeah definitely unsigned like we were well, I guess right after that unearthed point we kind of started working with the distributor and we just had like a very loose like license deal going on but yeah it was fully just like very free creatively and I could just kind of make whatever and then they would facilitate it coming out and I think through that triple j thing like when you kind of come up in that world there's a lot of goodwill there and you can just kind of keep making stuff and giving it to them and then it's on the radio i don't think that happens anywhere else (laughs) well it's (laughs) you know it seems like it's like a really good community that's what it sounds like to me is that the people that love to make music and promote music they're just all supporting each other you know yeah there's some business shoved in there too but i don't know it just sounds (laughs) like you know it sounds like community helping each other out yeah, it's a nice time. And I guess the other thing with that is like the touring circuit here. There's lots of like traveling festivals and everyone kind of does them. And through that, you just see the same people every week in a different city on the weekend playing. I mean, that hasn't been a thing for a year and a half now, but um, right, unfortunately. definitely when I, was, when I was coming up, there was that kind of community aspect that was awesome. kind of replicated in the touring side as well. Do you think that ends up in there being a lot of collaboration and like extra co-writes and, you know, people just working together? Yeah, definitely. I mean, the co-writing thing, like, I feel like that's really become a big part of music in Australia in the last couple of years. Definitely when I was coming up, it was less the case. And I think maybe that was because a lot of the artists that were really succeeding at that time were like, you know, solo DIY, very self-made people in the like Flume, Gautier, Tame Impala kind of world. Right. And I think because of that for a while, there was just this perception that, you know, everyone kind of keeps to themselves in the studio and does as much as they can themselves. And that's the way to succeed. Yeah. Which, I mean, yeah, obviously it worked for those artists and it works for a lot of people. But I think there was a bit of a stigma around co-writing, definitely in Melbourne where the scene is very, you know, DIY and independent focused. If you're enjoying this episode, then please consider pulling your phone out, 
tapping that share button and sending this to one person that you think would enjoy it. Obviously, it would be huge for me, but it could be even more game-changing for that person. You just never know what can inspire or help someone else out. I want to take a second to tell you about Secret Sonics, a podcast by Ben Wallach and Carl Bonner. Secret Sonics is one of my favorite shows, and it's now double amazing with the addition of Carl Bonner as a co-host. Ben and Carl have teamed up to discuss the real-world trials and triumphs of music production. They cover it all from mixing and studio tricks to branding and mindsets. If you're a fan of progressions, you'll be a fan of Secret Sonics. Check it out wherever you listen to podcasts or hit the link in the show notes. Is, um, these are like some of the Australian listeners that come to hear you are going to hate some of my questions. <laughs> you're like silly American person. But uh, is this like the music scene in like Melbourne and Sydney like super different? like you would imagine like Los Angeles and Nashville and New York over here? Yeah. I mean, I would say it's like Melbourne is New York and Sydney is LA in terms okay. of, you know, where the industry is and where all the co-writing's happening and all of that stuff. Got it. And I feel like in Melbourne, you know, I do a lot of that kind of co-writing work, but maybe it's like with the same five or six artists across a year and we just you know, you find your people and you stick with them and then I'll go to Sydney for two weeks and it's I'm working with a different person every single day and then I never see them again. And I think that living in Melbourne definitely like gives me a little more space to kind of just find my people and work with them and, you know, work towards bigger projects rather than just having a bunch of like potential cuts in the universe and not really knowing what's going to happen. <laughs> Yes. Yeah, yeah. So, okay. Yeah. So Sydney's definitely to Los Angeles then. Yeah. Cause that is, uh, that's the story of LA different, <laughs> different writers every four hours. Oh, I wanted to talk about touring. What was the touring like early for you? Were you able to have a band on the road? Were you having to like one man show it with like looping and Ableton? How'd you get started? Yeah. I mean, the first kind of couple years was that just looping in Ableton thing. And right. it was, fine I mean every like that was so many artists were touring like that and that was a very common thing to see like it was you know you had Ableton and you had your launch pad and you had your like SPD drum pad and you would hit that for some of the samples and maybe a keyboard if you could play and that was that yeah yeah and I think one of the last tours that I did in that kind of setup was supporting M83 and just getting to spend time with those guys and see like electronic music just presented so well and in a really engaging way by a band yeah, kind of made me think about switching it up. And we had a bunch of, I think that was like right before our first big festival season. And yeah, it made me go, okay, it's band time and kind of like really put the work into trying to make things a bit more engaging and feel a bit more live and kind of less stuck to the computer and all of that stuff but I think it really took seeing it done by like some of the best people to do it to make me realize that it could be possible yeah well you know it's hard to like to take something that is of such epic scale as that or a lot of the other projects out there you can't go on the road with like 20 people so you have to find that balance of like how many people play live, it, it becomes a, like there's a visual aspect as well as, you know, how many things can one person do? Can you play guitar and trigger things? Cool, you can do two things at the same time. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, totally. I think, I think kind of everyone in my band and crew is multitasking. And there's like six or sometimes seven of us on tour. There's five oh, in the band and one or two crew. Yeah. And... 
everyone's doing more than one thing. <laughs> and, but I think that every, I mean, yeah, a lot of the kind of touring people here, you just kind of have to do that. Because, I mean, yeah. Even if you're playing big shows, there's like five or six places you can tour and then that's the end of the tour. Often, in just in terms of like budgets and stuff, you can't really offset, you know, bringing a lot of people by like playing 30 shows and just kind of making it. Right. I guess that you way, can't you know? add one more city to, no. to pay, pay for your last person because you played them all. Yeah. Do you have any tips for the up and coming artist that is trying to figure their first tour out? whether it's like a technical thing or like a stage presence or just a, a, anything that you did that you wish you never did? <laughs> just save some kid? I mean, I think the best thing that I did was learn how to do all the playback stuff myself mm. and, you know, get the, the Ableton session with all the playback stuff set up and know how to maintain that and know how to troubleshoot it and add things over time. And Because, I mean, I kind of do that work as well for other bands and it can get expensive and yeah. especially if you're starting out and you're just trying to learn you know you're just trying to figure out what works in the context of your live show and you've got this record that you're trying to kind of pull apart and put back together on a stage like if someone else is doing that for you and you're kind of paying them to do it that's a big cost yeah I mean also it just allows for a lot more flexibility like if you feel like you play a show and something's not working that day and you want to change it you don't have to go back to the musical director who lives in a different city and get them to like make the tweaks and send it back to you and pay the invoice and that whole thing you can just kind of like change some things up in soundcheck the next day and play it and see if it's working and yeah being able to understand the technical side of playing electronic music live can definitely set up artists for just an easier time I think oh yeah for sure any band leader should definitely learn how to run the Ableton rig. And you know what? Mm. One day you're going to blow up and then you won't have to set up your rig. You'll have an MD, but at least you can speak the language to him as well, you know, or him or her. Totally. Yeah. I think the other thing that I would suggest that I always do suggest to people when they're starting out is like one thing to not cut corners on is a monitors engineer and... Um, you know, playing with in-ears because stages are loud and they'll ruin your hearing if you're like standing next to a drummer that's like hitting cymbals all day. Oh, yeah. Hearing and needs to be protecting saved. your hearing. And, yeah, yeah, definitely. There are so yeah. many parts of this job where I feel like I'm just meeting people with tinnitus all the time. And it's a bit sad. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've heard stories about, you know, classic huge bands and, you know, they're making, still making records and, you know, the drummer can't hear the click anymore you know because he's been behind and it it's you know it it's sad because it is it's like it's your passion and it wouldn't your ears start to go it's yeah it's, mm, it's, i'm it's terrified a, of it right i uh, know i know and you know it happens to everybody eventually it's like natural that the high end disappears one day but uh on a happier note <laughs> because you're we should hold on let's pause for one second your music is dope i love like you're layering like I, I'm, I I love what you're doing and people Thank need to you. they should pause the show really quick before <laughs> the next question and like listen to one or two songs off a of glow or or your latest single and uh so now we'll go back to the question but <laughs> since your your music is so uh 
it's so put together and like atmospheric and there's so many layers. Are you able to try new songs out on the road? Yeah. I mean, we are because of that, because I know how to use the Ableton stuff. And because you have enough people in the band. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, with my band, like, we're not really like interfacing with the electronics that much. Over like a few years of touring and lots of things going wrong and just troubleshooting lots on stage, we've got to this point where there's no MIDI on stage. Everything is, you know, if there are electronics happening live, it's all like hardware samplers and analog synths and guitar pedals rather than, you know, plugins and effects going on in the computer and trying to run MIDI cables across the stage and all of that. Right. Unless you're touring with a tech that can troubleshoot that stuff on stage if it goes wrong like that can be like a show-stopping problem to have so yeah we're not really like there's not any kind of like triggering the next section when we feel like it's right like everything's like very much stuck to the click and stuck to the arrangement but I think we can kind of do it because yeah pretty much everyone in my band is like a good Ableton user and a good listener and a good player so it's like quite an easy team effort to get songs together i think oh, okay that's awesome so you don't have to like wait for the record to be done before you play the new song you can no. because of the way that you're you've put together your band you can play new stuff out on the road yeah. that's awesome and like yeah in terms of my band like often people who are in the band are working on the records or playing on the records or like my drummer shares my studio and I live with my guitarist and stuff. So like everyone (laughs) kind of just knows the music just because we all work together and we're friends and I'm always like sending them demos to get, you know, their take on and stuff. So I feel like getting new songs together for my band has always been a pretty easy thing to do. And also like we have a great front of house engineer who we trust and who has kind of a similar taste to us and likes the music and, you know, especially when we're trying out new things, like we'll try and just do a bit of a longer sound check or something. And I'll just be asking Brett questions about how the tracks are working and how the, you know, drum triggers are sounding. And like, where there's a lot of back and forth from him to us in terms of like getting the sounds right on stage. And yeah, it's good. I think over a long period of time and kind of a bunch of people kind of moving in and out, we've landed in a really good spot with the live show. That's awesome. You were uh, you were just doing some shows or about to do some shows before you guys locked down again, right? Did you get a chance yeah, to we get out there? Yeah, we were about to. <laughs> oh, I no, you didn't get to do one? No. It's, oh, yeah. Shit. I mean, yeah, we'll get there. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's, oh, man, I feel so, so much for live sound and venues and like, and for like artists feed off of that. You know, it's like, that's why you got into this because you wanted to like share your music with people. And that's like the, that's where, that's like the home of sharing music is in front of people. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I definitely think that over the course of the pandemic, I've been thinking of myself a lot more as a producer and a songwriter than as an artist. And I think that that's a lot to do with, yeah, just not playing shows and kind of forgetting that people listen to the music and like it and have a relationship with it because I've just been you know, hanging out on my own at the studio, making stuff. Yeah. Okay, so let, let's transition over to that side a little bit. You do a lot of production and songwriting. Do you want to try to balance these things 50-50? Or do you feel a little bit more drawn to, you know, working with other artists? 
it's interesting because like I think the way that my music kind of started getting out into the world was almost quite accidental and like I didn't really ever kind of have this big dream of being a touring artist and I I well I do really love it and I find a lot of you know the parts of that job to be quite empowering like I feel like my personality is a lot more suited to kind of just being in the studio and like I've never really felt like a front person and I feel like (laughs) getting on stage and like being a front person is something I really have to focus on and really have like it doesn't come naturally to me and while I love doing it sometimes it just gets a little tiring and it gets a little like emotionally just a bit confusing and weird and there's just lots of imposter syndrome and weird stuff to navigate even if we're (laughs) playing in front of a thousand people like that seem to like it I'm always like they know that I'm faking and that this is not easy for me (laughs) and I think when I go and see bands that I love like it feels like they're doing what they're supposed to do sometimes I wonder if that's me or not but when I'm producing I definitely feel like that and when I'm in the studio whether it's working on stuff for myself or for other people like that's definitely the thing that I love the most and want to do forever yeah yeah and I mean I guess like the artist career like you have to really work on defining success for yourself in a way that works true so that you're not let down all the time um because the whole thing with this is like there's never really a point where you're like all right I've made it I'm good like there's always the next venue that's bigger than the last one or like there's always like more streams to be had on a song or anything like that so and I think even just you know from the perspective of like the team behind an artist everyone's always thinking like 12 months ahead or 18 months ahead in terms of the next thing and how to grow things and success always feels like it is just like out of reach if that's your definition of it but I think for me like I'm pretty content with just being able to show up to the studio every day you know and not having to get another job that's been a a important development for me I think yeah well I mean it's funny it's like like you said there's always there's always a carrot on the stick because there's always <laughs> another level. You know, it's like you get you you win a Grammy for record of the year, you can win Grammy for record of the year the year after. Like it's not, <laughs> you know, it's like it's not over. It, you there's still another level or another thing and you do have to kind of like like you said you have to find that balance of chasing and then like living. Because you can you can not l- not live if you get caught in the chase sometimes and you know five years later you're like oh man i've been on the road for five years <laughs> or, or or whatever i've been in the studio for five years and I, I haven't left but that's a good point i'm glad you brought that up i like that yeah and it's interesting like looking back on stuff i think there are things that you know in five or six years of putting music out and touring and you know living that lifestyle like there are things that at the time seemed like really intense challenges that weren't enjoyable and that were just like just really really hard work that I look back on and I'm like wow that was a really big milestone and that was a nice thing and I didn't know it at the time or didn't let myself kind of feel like that or reflect on what that might mean yeah well you know what Um, a friend of mine were talking about this I, I don't think it was on the podcast I don't know 
sometimes it's hard to remember what you've <laughs> talked about with who. But um, it's people don't celebrate their their victories as much as they celebrate, well, focus on their defeats. You know what I mean? Like the fact that you didn't sell out a venue is the thing that you'll remember from a tour as opposed to like selling out the nine other venues. And I don't know why yeah. the mind is like that, but it's it finds that one negative thing. Despite the fact that you sold out nine venues, it's going to tell you every time you walk past the one you didn't sell out, you're going to be like, I didn't sell that place out. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I don't know why the mind does that. It's It sucks for people, especially artists. Yeah, it, it does suck. I feel like I'm... <laughs> Like I have to be really on top of like positive self-talk in my brain to kind of move past those things. But sometimes also those things can be really great motivators, you know? True. Like, That's true. Especially when they are things that, you know, you can kind of control doing it better the next time, which, you know, selling out a venue is kind of not really in your control. But I feel like that with production a lot. I don't know. I find... We were talking about this before, but like getting mixes back is a very revealing kind of process for me. Because I think you get a mix back and often it exposes what's not right about the production, you know, or like what you could have done better. Or there are so many things that I feel like I learn every time I hear a first mix from something that I've produced. But I think, yeah, in that environment, those things are really good motivators because it's like, okay, like, this time, maybe the relationship between the drums and the bass wasn't as obvious as it should have been or something. And it took a few passes of the mix to kind of get it there. But next time, I'm just going to do that, you know? You know, it takes, it takes experience to look for those learning opportunities. Because a lot of people would just say, the mix is wrong. You didn't huh. do the mix. As opposed to like, well, the low end's not right. And then think about like the bass and the kick drum and be like, I could have done that better. Maybe I can tell him or her how to improve upon it. Yeah, a lot of people would never be willing to admit any type of defeat. <laughs> hmm. You know what I mean? Like, what, what can't be a learning opportunity for you because your production was perfect. So, yeah. And I think a lot of that comes from the kind of old school studio dynamics where, you know, you're first the intern and then you're the assistant and then you're the engineer and it's like you you would never tell like your relationship to the artist coming from that world is like that the artist and the producer are always right and you're just kind of yeah. there facilitating for them which I find like quite an uncomfortable dynamic to be a part of <laughs> because it's so often not true and I feel like the guy that's like at the studio every day doing the coffee runs and whatever and like hearing everything that's got that's going on is going to have so much more perspective than like you, the artist that's spent every day for the last 12 months, like listening to the same songs and kind of trying to get them finished. Oh yeah. Yeah. Cause mm. you get, but no one ever so else that lost in a project. Yeah. No, 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 no. But you can look at him to see if his head's bobbing when, uh, when they come in the room. <laughs> True. But, uh, but yeah, nobody's, nobody's going to ask him what they think. Let's go back to your artist career and maybe advice you might have for for kids. You have a you have a label deal now, right? Yeah. On your journey to getting, I don't know if this is your first record deal or or not, to getting your deal, is there anything that like you learned along the way that 
you think would help a kid, an independent artist that like might be at that stage where a label can take them to the next level? Any thoughts for that person? I think doing it yourself as long as you can is really good. And I think it kind of sets you up for a better relationship with whoever that team becomes. Because if you sign with a label after your first single, let's say, and when you're at a stage where you know, you're playing local shows and 50 people or 100 people are coming. I think if that label then takes you from that place to, you know, selling out shows in other countries or whatever it may be, like they're going to feel like they have, or that success was more to do with them maybe. Mm. Yeah. But, you know, with my band, like I was putting stuff out for a few years and we were touring and kind of gradually growing things ourselves before a label got on board and I think just in terms of like the way that I approach their feedback and you know their kind of thoughts on things like I think I can contextualize it a lot more because I know that even though like having that perspective is so useful and often they have ideas that I would never think of that are you know quite handy and quite relevant I think ultimately like artists are in the position that they're in because of themselves and because of their ideas and their, you know, personality or whatever it is that's kind of led them to that place. And I think that often it can, that can get a little bit lost in the big team and in kind of approaching things by committee as it starts to happen when, when more people get involved. And like, yeah, I think for me, it's been really actually easy to just know that at the end of the day. And, and I mean, especially with my thing, like, you know, I had a record that was very programmed sounding and very electronic. And then the next one I wanted to be a lot more live and I wanted to feel like it was done in a studio and, and not to feel like a computer. And there definitely was pushback from people on the team in terms of, you know, why change something that's already working so well and a lot of those kind of fears. But it was yeah. just really easy for me to know that I had to listen to myself because ultimately, like, I was the one that got myself there. That's, that is such a good point. Yeah, you're, you're the one that got you there. And the other thing that I think, you know, if, if you don't know what type of artist you are or who you are as an artist and you get sucked up into the, the committee that you're talking about, mm. it can be so confusing and disorienting disorientating <laughs> yeah I don't think that's the right time to sign a deal it's so easy to get caught up in all of that stuff and I know so many people that have signed record deals at a really kind of young age and then found navigating that whole ecosystem to be really challenging and often the music gets held up for years and releasing never happens and it just kind of becomes this big nightmare and obviously there are great people as well and there are great labels that kind of are really artist focused and really listen but at the same time like it can be so easy to kind of lose yourself and your intentions and your autonomy in that world and I think that it's good to get to a place where you know that you can do it yourself and you have been doing it yourself successfully kind of before entering into that world I think yeah if you have the skills some people don't have the skills and they like for me, I don't have the, the, there are so many skills that an artist probably needs that I 
don't have, you know, and maybe like if you're great at the marketing side and the social media side and the image stuff and you're a great writer and you've got a great voice, but you need help in kind of facilitating like finishing the music, then sometimes like that's going to be really hard to do on your own at a high level, given people's fees and kind of having access to maybe the producers that you want to work with and stuff like that. I guess it's different for everyone, but for me, that's definitely been the thing that's worked. Yeah. So one, one more random question. I'm really jumping around on, on today's episode. <laughs> um, you've done a lot of remixes and I noticed that you've had remixes done of your music and like remixing to me is like, it's so foreign. Like I've never dabbled in it. I don't know anybody that does it. Do you find that to be as an artist, does it pan out to be very beneficial to you? Is it, is it set up by managers and labels or is it more of like an artist to artist? Like I love your music. You want to do a remix? Like how do these things come about in the remix um, world for mostly cause I'm curious. <laughs> <laughs> I think a lot of it does come through the, you know, the managers and the labels partly because it's it's a very it's not really part of the record making process you know like when I'm yeah making songs I'm not really thinking about oh this would be great for a you know a flume remix or something you know, it's just not I think I think that the music industry kind of approaches it as as more of a kind of marketing tool than than anything else so it does yeah more often than not come through managers and labels but it is really fun and I I think it's kind of pretty similar to production work when someone comes in with a demo and it's like time to turn that into a song like it's the same thing but I can just kind of be a lot more experimental with it as well yeah in some ways like it's a way to make things with artists that maybe I wouldn't really have access to as a producer just yet yeah, it's just something something I really enjoy. And I, I think in, in terms of whether it's been beneficial or not, it's a, a way to maybe reach people that you wouldn't have access to in terms of your own releases just yet. Like, you know, if I'm yeah. if a remix is coming out that I did for someone that's on Atlantic or whatever, that's probably going to get further in the US than I'd be able to get my own music in that territory. Yeah. I think for me, it's been probably more beneficial than touring in other in other areas. Ah. I mean, yeah, the, it's a lot less expensive to do. And <laughs> you can kind of just like find people where they are rather than, you know, get to a new city and like you're promoting everything. And like, I don't know. I feel like as, as I do this more, I'm realizing that touring is less and less the thing. But yeah, I'm having a nice time doing remixes. And I think like, especially when I'm feeling not super inspired or creative to be making stuff for myself having remixes to do kind of just keeps the muscles working and it's a good opportunity to try new things that just kind of like on my own time that then I might incorporate into you know production work or a Japanese wallpaper record or just anything else that I'm working on yeah do you find it a difficult at all to work on to like reimagine a song that already exists or is it like exciting? I mean, if it's a song that I don't already know, I'll try not to listen to it much before I'm going to start working on it. And I think that sometimes when I can do that, it creates really good 
or it, it just means that I can be, yeah, be a lot less kind of beholden to the original material and the original arrangement and chord progression and stuff like that. Like if I don't know the song and I'm going to start a remix, often I'll just drag in the vocal stem and put in the tempo and just kind of start building things around it rather than, you know, bringing in all the chords and really kind of getting to know the source material. I don't know. I think the thing with my project is that over time, and I think especially because I'm self-taught as a producer, like I think my first few years of making stuff, like it all really sounded like itself. And I think maybe that was because it was the only thing I knew how to make. But I think (laughs) I like, you know, people listen to my music and I think it has a sound. And often when people want me to remix stuff, they just want like a little bit of that sound in the context of their song. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good a good perspective. Yeah. It's like, yeah, everything sounds like you because it's all you knew how to make. That's like really simplifies like so many people's like sound. They're like, oh, you have such a distinct sound. You're like, well, it's what I'm, uh, it's what I make. <laughs> Going back to uh, your production side, are you, are you, making are you playing the game are you making beats every day we'll call them beats for lack of a better term <laughs> um are you stretching that muscle every day do you give you any tips for young producers that are just trying to get better every day i think i probably spend six days a week looking at ableton in some form <laughs> yeah i don't really make beats sometimes i think i should and sometimes people ask me if i have beats and i wish i did but I, That's such a catchphrase. They're like, yo, let me hear your, <laughs> let me hear your beats. Yeah, I mean, I think I'm... The music that I grew up loving was not electronic music. And I think at the moment, even, the music that I'm the most drawn to is not... Well, I, I think I'm way more drawn to songwriting than I'm drawn to production as a listener. And because of that, I think like my creative endeavors are a lot more centered around songs than like cool instrumental things but for the most part yeah I'm not I'm not that interested in making beats but I definitely think doing stuff every day is kind of the only way to get better at it and for me I guess I'm just busy enough at the moment that I don't really have to like think about that too much and there's just kind of always stuff to do that's Um, awesome it's a good place to be yeah and I've been noticing that in myself as well like Recently, I've also been kind of finishing off songs that I've for a project that I started with someone like two or three years ago, even, and just kind of going into those initial sessions and listening to the rough mixes and then kind of building on them. It's like, it's nice when you've been putting in the time for a while and you can kind of reflect back and see that it's been working and that putting in time every day does make you better at stuff. Yeah. And I think that's been really motivating to me as well because I feel like I just want to keep going and just keep hopefully getting better. I mean, you learn something every day, whether, you know, you're making a beat or just playing guitar. It's like, it's all those like little things that like build up. And I mean, I guess by beat, I was really just meaning, do you create music every day? The beat's the word that came out of my mouth. (laughs) I think when I'm thinking about my just kind of day-to-day life in the studio and what I'm working on and stuff like I'm interested in spending like more time on fewer 
projects than working mm. on heaps and heaps of different stuff. Yeah. And I think that, you know, to be like respectful and trustworthy and just be like a good person with good qualities is like important to that, <laughs> which I try to be all the time. But I, I think people don't really want to work with people that aren't that. And yeah. I think that to be, I feel like coming in with, with a folder of beats and just kind of saying like, this is what it is. Now it's like you have to fit your artist project and your writing and your self-expression into like this loop that I made before from Splice Oliver Power Tools Pack 3 or whatever, like is not the way to like show respect to the artist and to be like listening to their ideas and facilitating unique creative expression, I think. Yeah. I'm well, not really interested in like doing things that aren't that. So, and everybody involved in the project remembers that. They remember like, hey, if you're in the room with Gab, you're going to create from scratch. Everybody's going to be involved. It's going to be a fulfilling experience. You know, maybe it's going to be the greatest song you ever wrote. Maybe it's just going to be a good song. But you know what's important is that it's going to be a lot of fun and that's why people make music because it's fun. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. It's, and I, and I think it, like, if it's not that, then don't, don't do it. Yeah, I agree. And also, I think as just a music fan, it's really exciting for me to work with artists that I love. Yeah. And just kind of get to make more of something that I already really like. And I, I, I think <laughs> that it's way more interesting to kind of just be facilitating someone else's pursuit and someone else's vision rather than telling them what they have to do and what they should sound like because of whatever reason you think you have that they should sound like, sound a certain way. Yeah. And even like, you know, when I did my last record, I was working with a producer called Ben Allen and he had a studio in Atlanta and I kind of went there for a month and we just hung out and finished this record. And he was really reluctant to play on the record, which I was really kind of, I thought was awesome because it just meant that I was playing more, but I was quite nervous and it often took me a few takes to get things where I th thought they should be. And the whole time I knew that Ben could just do it in one take and it would be great because he's a really awesome guitarist. But that was like a really empowering experience for me. And I think that, yeah, that kind of left me with that idea for other artists that I'm working with as well. It's like, uh, yeah, it's the same way that it's not that interesting for me to just open up a folder of beats. It's also not that interesting for me to play every single instrument on someone else's record. Yeah, that's amazing. I've run into some producers that work like that, but you really empower the artist when you do that because they're going to play the guitar or they're going to play the piano differently than you would. Mm. And it's their music. You know what I mean? Like, I just think that that is such an amazing move. And I think that every producer listening to this should go back and listen to that again because that is like really collaboration at its core and and getting the best out of the person that you're working with and understanding how to do that you know because like you said you felt empowered that's how people feel when they 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 play the part you know what i mean yeah and i, I guess also like being a 
producer that's working on lots of different records. I mean, I said that I don't want to be doing this, but I'm still, still am working on lots of different projects at the same time. Um, <laughs> I think, you know, the goal is to make a record sound the most like itself and not to make every record that you're working on at a given moment sound like all the other records that you're working on. And I think yeah. that that's really hard when you're playing everything because, you know, as a player, you have things that you do, or I definitely have things that I do all the time and, you know, chord voicings that are just the voicings that I play or like guitar pedals that I just always go and turn on because I know that I like them. But if I'm working with someone that's that plays guitar, I always try and ask them to bring their own pedal board in and just like get their sound into their session rather than my sound into their session. Yeah. Well, it's because it's their music. And so yeah, you're exactly. A, you're a better producer. You're like, you become a facilitator because that's like, there's a type of producer that facilitates the artist vision and that doesn't necessarily involve doing it. Yeah. And I think at the end of the day, like, you know, I'm going to finish making a record with someone and then I'm going to have a couple of days off and then I'm going to start the next one. But they're going to finish making the record with me and then they're going to go and if all goes well, tour that record for two years and then like be living with those songs for the rest of their life as an artist. And if it's not what they want it to be and if it's not kind of their thing, that's going to feel really hollow, I think. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And you know it would be like their biggest hit too and it would be the most painful thing to play <laughs> for like 40 years. But yeah, that's good stuff. I love that. Um, I wanted to ask you a nerdy question before my my final closing questions. Yeah. Uh, what's your What's your go-to analog synth or or hardware synth um what's your favorite yeah i love my juno 6 i feel like i use it all the time i know how it sounds i know everything about it and it's just great although recently yeah i mean the thing with that though is that it does really have a sound and i feel like there's only especially if you turn the chorus button on there's like only a couple layers of that that you can really fit into production yeah but recently i've been getting kind of into like modular stuff which has been fun damian taylor who i know that you've interviewed on this before kind of really got me going in that in that world they can be trouble the modular world yeah yeah i mean i bought a really small case and i planned out exactly what i wanted and i haven't you know haven't pulled anything out haven't replaced anything i don't really want any more modules like i'm pretty happy Nice. Also, like, yeah, the Korg Monopoly. I feel like I use that mm. a lot. They're kind of my my go tos. Good, good choices. I'm I'm a fan. I I just uh I don't I don't even play keys. I'm just obsessed with uh-huh. Juno. I don't know why. Maybe it's because I was born in '84. Yeah, I no well, idea. it just sounds like all the music that I love. You yeah, know? That, I, that's what it is. That's what that's what I love about it. Is it like I just have heard it so many times. It's you know, it's like guys that grew up making records on tape all they all they do is complain that you know tape sounded better you know it's what they listened to for 40 years and they they love the sound of it but okay so i've got two questions i close the show with that i ask everybody one of them is a new one and you kind of answered it a little bit but i'm going to ask it anyway because that's what i'm going to do um was there a time in your career up until this point when you chose to redefine what success meant to you yeah i think it was like quite early on in the pandemic end of 2019 
I put my album out that I'd been working on for like 18 months or maybe two years. And it went well. All the singles got played on the radio. We did a tour and people came to the shows and they knew the songs and they liked the songs and they liked the shows and they liked the album. The album got good reviews. People bought it on vinyl. Like it was all like, it was, it was great. It was a good release, but to me, it really, it wasn't kind of living up to the expectation that I had. And the expectation that I had was through the roof because I'd been working on it every day for two years yeah. and I couldn't see that things were fine because no kind of reception to a thing is going to live up to the time that you've spent and the emotion and the money and everything that you've kind of put into making it great. And I found that process really hard to navigate and we would get on stage in front of like people that were obviously like really excited to be there and really liked the music. And I just felt like I was just like failing, you know? So we kind of got to the end of that touring cycle, which was pretty brutal emotionally. And then right after that, I like parted ways with my management and I was just feeling really not sure what was going on. And I was thinking about like going to uni and just studying something that wasn't music and just like, I just felt like I needed a really big change. And then, you know, pandemic happens and we're all just inside and freaking out and everything's weird. And then kind of production stuff keeps going and everything keeps going. And I realized that I was feeling like really happy and stable and yeah. I was like, cool, this is great. I could do this forever. And I hope that I can. And I feel like, yeah, as I said before, just like feel very, I, I mean, I still kind of battle with the imposter syndrome all the time with feeling like all the artists that I'm working with could be working with someone better than me. And yeah, I, I don't know. It's a, there's a weird kind of emotional game that we play doing this job. But I think that if I can just kind of keep, I feel very lucky that I am working in music full time and I know what a privilege that is. And I know that there are so many amazing people that haven't been able to figure that out yet. And I, I think that's, I mean, you know, one day I'd love to move to LA and do the whole thing and kind of experience that kind of success, success on a, on that scale, if that uh, still exists and is possible. But for now, like I'm pretty if I can just keep doing this every day, I'm, I'm pretty happy. Yeah. It's, it's what makes you happy. That's, that's the goal. That's what I basically try to get everybody to say on the show. <laughs> yeah. Also like yeah. we're working in music. It's the best job ever. I, like we just you know, get to like come to the studio and just make cool sounds and do weird shit and people pay us for it. Yeah. It's the fact that we can make a living in this like super abstract, like it's just crazy. That there's even a value that you can attach to, you know, a job. <laughs> you yeah. Know, it's, you know what I mean? It's, uh, so, yeah, man, that, I feel that. I, I, feel your, I feel you on that one. Um, and now the, the final and traditional question for um, progressions is, uh, what right now is your current biggest goal and what is the next smallest step you're going to take to get there? I want to be a better mixer. Ah. And I think that... You know, take my job. <laughs> I just want to, I, I think that it's something that I've always been really fascinated by, but I feel like my progress has been really slow. 
And I think that's because I haven't actually been trying to be mixing. I've just been trying to make my rough mixes sound better in the in the production sessions. And, you know, I sometimes mix things for friends, but it's always like I never want to get paid for it. And I'm always really down on myself about it. And it's like, I just need to do this to get better at it. But then I just get in this weird cycle of thinking that I'm not a good mixer because I only do it for free. And it's like a very not really like a big part of my life or my job, but I think I just need to start doing it. And I just yeah. need to start like taking on mixing work and, you know, pulling stems into a new session that isn't the production session and maybe learning a different DAW and just kind of like making that separation mentally between the production and the mix and just getting better at it. Because yeah, I mean, I watch Mix with the Masters like it's like a reality show or something. Like I <laughs> really want to know everything about mixing and I'm so fascinated by it. And, <laughs> you know, I know how to like produce songs that sound good and do all of that. But hearing a good mix is like watching someone do a magic trick to me. Like I'm so fascinated by it. And I, I want to be really good at it. I don't know. It's a weird one because I feel like I... I'm really hard on myself and I try and hold myself to a really high standard with the work that I'm doing. And I know that my mixes aren't going to be as good as all the mixes that I love working with and aren't going to, you know, like it's going to take time to get there. And I think I just have to kind of own that and not worry too much about what people think and just try and try and do it. Yeah. Well, you know, the only thing I'm going to interject in there is that you're coming from the angle of musician, producer, creator. And I think that mixing, I think when you approach mixing from that angle, you approach mixing completely differently. And I I say that because a good friend of mine who is songwriter, producer, uh, musician first, I have learned so much working with him because the things that he wants to do to a mix, he wants to do from a musical place. And I approach things from a technical place. And then in in the end, I think the musicality wins over and you have to find that balance. So I think I think that you are in a better place than you think you are because you, because you're already starting from there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's what I, I was talking about this the other day with my friend Tim who plays in this band called Middle Kids and he produces all their stuff and he's awesome. But he was playing me a lot of um like Broken Social Scene, which is okay. a band that I'd never really um, investigated before and he was saying that like growing up to to him that music was like the peak of music or it was just really like important to him and significant but the mixes sounded so weird and crusty and you know all the drums were were panned hard to one side and saturated in a really kind of abrasive way um but that and that kind of set him up to be like mixing in a weird way I think and like yeah thought that things that sounded really out there and bold were good, which I think it makes for really interesting work. And I think that all the mixes that I really kind of look up to like over, you know, over time and just people that are doing cool shit at the moment kind of like have that duality going and they know yeah. how to or like they like have the confidence to make weird moves but also back it up technically and make sure it still works and feels good and, um, you know, makes sense on different speakers and all the important technical stuff. 
But even yeah. still, like, you know, I'm obsessed with like Serban and Spike Stent and that world of mixes who aren't really doing anything out there and they're just like making everything sound massive and like emotional and cool. Yeah. Well, it's still emotional, but yeah, they have this way of mm. making every piece, every piece heard, you know, like everything yeah. needs to be heard is like perfectly heard. It is, uh, it is impressive. And, and, you know, I think of, uh, I think of Francois Titaz, you know, you know, Frank, Yeah. something I, Frank I took away podcast. with, I, I've been trying. All right. When you see him, <laughs> Frank, we're calling you out right here. Something I took away from working with him is, is he has that very creative musical side when he can back it up with the technical side and and the moves that he would make when we were working together they would be so drastic like me as a technical mixer i would be like i would never do that i would never do that and then when you hear it you're like fuck that's amazing why would i why would i've not why would i let a rule not make me do that and and so i think anyway i think that i think that that shit is almost more important in a mix coming from the mixer that is talking about how technical he is I'm saying mm. that musicality needs to come first. I should probably go back and drop this <laughs> in and make myself sound do, like a musical. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think I should do to be a better mixer? Mix your records. Just do just do True. it. I think you should just do it because you have to, it takes look, it's like it's like your Suzuki ear training to go all the way back to the beginning. It's it's repetition and in mastering it and then you start to listen to it in a different way and then you learn to combine your musical side with your technical side, and then you're you're mixing, you're making great mixes. Hmm. I made it sound really easy, but I mean <laughs> yeah, that's all it is. Easy. It's repetition and and just doing it. Dude, this is uh, this has been so much fun. Uh, before we go, I have to say that you're you're very humble, and all of our oh. all of our listeners should go listen to your music. Uh, it the Japanese wallpaper and everything that Gab is doing is really dope. I, I'm a fan. That's why he's on the show. Thank so you. check it out. Um, do you want to share websites or socials with anybody where they can find you and hang out? Um, yeah, I'm just on the internet. My band's <laughs> called Japanese Wallpaper. It's on it's on all the places you would expect to find it, or you can just Google my name, and I'm sure something will come up. <laughs> there you go. I'll put links for mm. those of you who don't know how to use Google. And um, that's it. Thank you so much, man. That was cool. uh, a yeah, good hang, so dude. Great to chat. So that's it for episode 45. Thanks to Gab for coming on the show. Definitely check out his music. He's doing really great work, like I said. Also, obviously, thank you for listening to the show. I appreciate all of you. If you've been getting value from the show, please consider leaving a review, sharing with a friend, or reposting on social media. Word of mouth really is the best way to grow a show like this. Also, we do have a Patreon set up for the show now. If you'd like to support it in that manner, it would be greatly appreciated. Thanks to our latest supporter from last week. You know who you are. And finally, don't forget to join us over at completeproducer.net. So many great conversations going on over there. Don't miss it. And I will see you next week.